Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Gileadi, Ph.D. 19. Types of a Great War in the Land Does an explicit war pattern in the Book of Mormon's war narratives typify a great war to end all wars that Isaiah predicts will precede Jehovah's coming? Welcome to podcast number 19, Types of a Great War in the Land. This, of course, is a type of a great world war that Isaiah predicts in the end time, which is patterned after the ancient Assyrian wars. The Assyrians were the first nation of the ancient Near East, the ancient world, to conquer the world and the known world by military force. But the way that the Hebrew prophets depict this is that it happens on the heels of the apostasy of God's people. And they came in and they took captive the ten northern tribes and took them to other parts of their empire. And the same kind of thing happens in the Book of Mormon. We have an amazing filling out of the details of Isaiah's prophecy of an end-time war, a great world war, let's call it World War III, a war to end all wars in the book of Isaiah. The Nephite prophets pick up right on this idea from Isaiah and depict only those things about their wars that kind of fill out the details or amplify and complement what's in the book of Isaiah. So there's a great war that I want to discuss among the Nephites and Lamanites today in this um, podcast that most typifies, I guess, the Assyrian wars in the book of Isaiah, which wars, in turn, are a type or an allegory of the great end-time wars in the world at large. There's going to be a latter-day Assyrian alliance that will conquer the entire world by military force following the pattern of the ancient Assyrian wars. That is what Isaiah prophesied. And the Book of Mormon fills out many of the details through these types of their wars. So we start with Alma 46, verses 1 through 5, kingmen versus lovers of liberty. Helaman was the son of Alma the Younger. He had been appointed high priest by Alma and sustained by the people. And he and his brethren, of course, we know them from, from their preaching to the Zoramites, Helaman's brethren. At the time of Alma the Younger's departure, however, the people were in an awful state of apostasy, by and large. And so it says here, As many as would not hearken to the words of Helaman and his brethren were gathered together against their brethren, and now, behold, they were exceedingly wroth, insomuch that they were determined to slay them. And of course, when people get to that point, you can see by what's happening in our nation today and elsewhere, is the very point that we have already reached. And so we can really apply these things to ourselves and see them fulfilled in our own day and age. We know that all these things follow a pattern. And once that pattern has been set in motion, then it's very difficult to turn it back around. Now, the leader of those who were wroth against their brethren was a large and strong man, and his name was Amalekiah, you know, one of the great villains of the Book of Mormon. And Amalekiah was desirous to be king. Those people who were rough were also desirous that he should be their king. And there were the greater part of them the lower judges of the land. And what about the lower judges of our land today who are taking upon themselves the roles of lawmakers? 
rather than following the law of the land, the Constitution. And so these are a prime target for Malachi, to use flattering words, it says, they were seeking for power and they had been led by the flatteries of Malachi that if they would support him and establish him to be their king, that he would make them rulers over the people. So that's the setting in which these events develop. We have discussed the secret combinations in the Book of Mormon as a type and shadow of our day. This is very much a part of that kind of thing. In reading Alma 46, verses 10 through 12, an agenda to destroy the church. Of course, ultimately, that is the end goal. Satan's end goal is to destroy the church, destroy the people of the Lamb, and so forth. We also saw how that needs to come to a head in order for the Lord to turn things around for the church and for his people, for his humble followers. He received Amalekiah because he was a man of cunning device and a man of many flattering words that he led away the hearts of many people to do wickedly. Now keep hearing this about leading away of the hearts. Satan leads away the hearts. Malachi leads away the hearts. So it's very much a penchant for people to kind of let go of their principles. And before they know it, they're in a totally different camp than the Lord's people. Yea, and to seek to destroy the church of God and to destroy the foundation of liberty which God had granted unto them. So in other words, this is very similar to the great and abominable church scenario in the end time, when those Gentiles who don't repent unite themselves with the great and abominable church and fight against Zion, and fight against all principles of truth and light and freedom and love of God and country. To seek to destroy the church of God and to destroy the foundation of liberty which God had granted unto them, or which blessing God had sent upon the face of the land for the righteous' sake. Of course, every covenant God makes has blessings and curses, and there are blessings and curses attached to this promised land of America. Because, well, upon any of the lands of God's people, wherever they live. So, this blessing, however, is you know contingent on is people's righteousness. So when the wicked begin to dominate the society, then he can take the blessings away and convert them into curses. And we see that now in many countries, even in this land, that the curses of God's covenant are overtaking the people already in the form of all kinds of natural disasters and currently the a virus that's spreading, locusts, whatever it may be, drought, floods, and so forth. And it came to pass that when Moroni, who was chief commander of the armies of the Nephites, had heard of these dissensions, he was angry with Amalekiah. Well, Amalekiah was raised in the Nephite tradition, and he was educated. He was a man of many flattering words, so he was a brilliant speaker, apparently. But he used it for the wrong purpose, and so no wonder that Moroni was angry with him because he knew he was being a traitor to the Nephites, to all that they stood for. And then in Alma 46, verses 12 and 13, it talks about Captain Moroni's title of liberty, which is, was a famous story. Uh, but this was kind of the Nephite media. <laughs> he was using the, what you might term the media in their day to spread the word, right? It came to pass that he rent his coat. He took a piece thereof and wrote upon it, in memory of our God, 
our religion, and freedom and peace, our wives and our children. And he fastened it upon the end of a pole, and he fastened it on his headplate, and his breastplate, and his shields, and girded on his armor about his loins. And he took the pole which he had on the end thereof, his rent coat, and he called it the title of liberty, and he bowed himself to the earth. Now this is amazing because he didn't just go out, let's go out and get the... No, he didn't do that. He bowed himself to the Lord knowing that he, of himself, nor his people could accomplish anything on their own, that only the Lord could deliver them from this new threat, which is a very serious threat. And he prayed mightily unto his God. And it's amazing to me how we get in all kinds of fixes and we still don't think about calling upon God. That's a mystery to me. Our natural man is, gets so engrossed with fear of this or fear of that, this challenge and that situation, and then we forget to pray. And that should be the first thing we should do, is connect with God. Even if we have a hard time with that, just say, Father in heaven, or just say, Jesus Christ. Just saying those words gets you connected and starts you. You pray, and that's what Moran I did. He prayed mightily unto his God. First things first. For the blessing of liberty to rest upon his brethren, so long as there should be a band of Christians remain to possess the land. I love that expression. A band of Christians remain to possess the land. So this was a collective group. In other words, he's assembling a collective group, a group of people, who under the terms of the Sinai Covenant that the Nephite nation was then under, collective covenant, like the Sinai covenant, could get their act together and covenant with the Lord. He knew that the Lord acts within the parameters of covenants, and that was his goal, to get everybody on the same page in that way, as many as could, as many as would. Yes, he was an intercessor, but he was an intercessor in the age of judges or governors, which was a collective form of government. So he really knew and understood the workings of God and how God related to his people, and how they could and should relate to God, the God of the land. Let me go to Alma 46, 19 through 20, a collective covenant to defend their rights. It says, And when Moroni had said these words, he went forth among the people, waving the rent part of his garment in the air, that all might see the writing which he had written upon the rent part, and crying with a loud voice, saying, Behold, Whosoever will maintain this title upon the land, let them come forward in the strength of the Lord and enter into a covenant that they will maintain their rights and their religion, that the Lord God may bless them. So he knew the workings of God, as I said, and he was willing to say, look, if we do this, the Lord's strength will be with us and we can fight what's called in the strength of the Lord. He will empower us against the enemy, sufficient to rise above it. But he knew that the way to do it was to enter into this covenant, a collective covenant. And it goes further to say in Alma 46, verses 21 and 22, a covenant not to transgress. Because this is a parity covenant, a covenant between equals, so to speak. And if one should transgress, it would affect the whole collective, the whole group. And that, of course, happened, uh, sadly, at the conquest of the land of Canaan by the Israelites. When one man transgressed, it affected the entire army, and they started losing the battle. No, under this collective Sinai covenant, everybody, to a man, needs to be a righteous person, needs to be obeying God's commandments. And again, you know, these people, it says, 
renting their garments in token as a covenant that they would not forsake the Lord their God. Again, harking to the prophecies about the end-time Gentiles when the great and abominable church threatens to wipe them out and to, to overcome them. Then it says, those Gentiles who are persuaded to fight against you know, Zion to unite with the great and abominable church, as I mentioned a moment ago. So it's either on the one hand or on the other, either you're willing to do what they did and conquer, or you succumb and become part of those whom the Lord has no use for. Or in other words, that if they should transgress the commandments of God or fall into transgression and be ashamed to take upon them the name of Christ, the Lord should rend them even as they had rent their garments. Well, that's pretty graphic, isn't it? But that was a token of what the kind of covenant that they made. It was very similar to God's covenant with Abraham when he divided all these animals and the fire passed between the animals. And basically Abraham was saying to the Lord, you know, let me be divided like these carcasses of these animals and then I'm offering up as a sacrifice to you if I renege from your covenant and become disloyal to you. It's very graphic, but it's very effective too to inspire you to maintain your righteousness, your, your integrity. Now this was the covenant which they made, and they cast their garments at the feet of Moroni, saying, We covenant with our God that we shall be destroyed, even as our brethren in the land northward, if we shall fall into transgression. And who was that? The land northward? That was the Jaredites. And they were wiped out through their iniquity. And so they're willing to, they fall into transgression, let us be destroyed. Yea, may he cast us at the feet of our enemies, even as we have cast our garments at thy feet to be trodden underfoot, if we shall fall into transgression. And they knew that if they covenant with the Lord in that manner, that he would support them, and they could fight in the strength of the Lord, which they did. And they were successful in fighting against Amalekai and his followers, and there were many. But on the other hand, number of things going on here because the dissenters always go over to the Lamanites and uh, Captain Moroni knew that if he was going to solve the situation, find a resolution, he had to deal with this internal struggle first. And this is what happens. So Captain Moroni proceeds to deal with these rebels, these kingmen, and we read in Alma 46 verses 35 through 37, a national cleansing of the inner vessel, that is, the nation of the Nephites themselves. And it came to pass that whomsoever of the Amalekites, after they had conquered the Amalekites, and it came to pass that whomsoever of the Amalekites that would not enter into a covenant to support the cause of freedom, that they might maintain a free government, he caused to be put to death. And there were but few who denied the covenant of freedom. Well, that was, anyway, the covenant of the land. And it came to pass also that he caused the title of liberty to be hoisted upon every tower, which was in all the land which was possessed by the Nephites. And thus Moroni planted the standard of liberty among the Nephites, and they began to have peace again in the land. Well, for a time, right? But this Amalekiah guy was some tyrant. We see that in the end he becomes very, very powerful causes much grief for the entire Nephite nation and also for the Lamanites. Read in Alma 47, verse 1. 
Amalekiah stirs up the Lamanites to war. Now we will return in our record to Amalekiah and those who had fled with him into the wilderness. As he himself escaped with a handful of his men, while the rest of the Amalekites were brought to order by Captain Moroni. For behold, he had taken those who went with him and went up into the land of Nephi among the Lamanites. And did stir up the Lamanites to anger against the people of Nephi, insomuch that the king of the Lamanites sent a proclamation throughout all his land, among all his people, that they should gather themselves together again to go to battle against the Nephites. This is an ongoing pattern in the Book of Mormon, as we are very much aware. So, through a series of intrigues and cunning, this Amalekiah gets himself crowned as king of the Lamanites. He succeeds in becoming king of the Lamanites. And a nationwide war begins from that point on. He rallies all the Lamanites against the Nephites again, and they go to war. And of course, that war was one of the most devastating wars that happened among the Nephite nation. As Amalekiah and his armies conquered city after city, even the fortified cities in the west, he conquered them all. And right up to the land of Bountiful, and also other cities, they conquered, and that is when Helaman and his stripling warriors do their fight, and many thousands of Nephites are killed, and many Lamanites, of course, also. So, what is all this telling us? Well, in the book of Isaiah, there is this tyrant figure, the king of Assyria, or the king of Babylon, it's the same guy. He conquers the world, like Amalekiah was conquering this land, this promised land of the Nephites. And then, in this war pattern in the book of Isaiah, we have this very kind of thing happening. The Lord's end-time servant takes the place of Captain Moroni, because Isaiah describes God's end-time servant as a new Moses, a new Joshua, a new Gideon, a new David, a new Cyrus. Remember, Cyrus also conquered the world. And basically, a new Captain Moroni, if you like, from this type and shadow in the Book of Mormon. And Isaiah describes him as these biblical figures under various disguises, let's say, or, or various personas, or various types and shadows. And he combines these it's kind of like a composite typology that Isaiah uses. Whatever this one hero did, the servant does that. And whatever this other biblical hero did, the servant does that also. But because no one biblical figure did all those things that the Lord's end-time servant is going to do, Isaiah depicts them in these different roles of Israel's ancient heroes. Before I discuss the sum up with the war pattern, I want to read Alma 48, verses 11 through 14, about the character of Moroni. How Moroni covenanted to defend his people, covenant with God. This is a beautiful passage. And Moroni was a strong and mighty man. He was a man of perfect understanding, which comes from his spirit and spiritual progression. Yea, a man that did not delight in bloodshed, a man whose soul did joy in the liberty and freedom of his country, and his brethren from bondage and slavery. A man whose heart did swell with thanksgiving to his God for the many privileges and blessings which he bestowed upon his people. A man who did labor exceedingly for the welfare and safety of his people. Yea, he was a man who was firm in the faith of Christ. 
and he had sworn with an oath to defend his people, his rights, and his country, and his religion even to the loss of his blood. Now the Nephites were taught to defend themselves against their enemies, even to the shedding of blood if it were necessary. Yea, and they were also taught never to give offense. Yea, and never to raise the sword except it were against an enemy, except it were to preserve their lives. And this is what a, a beautiful passage that expresses so well the divine principles on which we may go to war, and which we should go to war and obliged to, if the need arises. And the way things are going in this country and around the world, you can see that as in the First World War and the Second World War, something like this would be inevitable, the way things are going today. So in summary, the Book of Mormon's war pattern corresponds with Isaiah's war prophecies. And what is that war pattern? The war pattern in the Book of Mormon and in Isaiah consists of internal forces within the Lord's people and within the land of the Lord's people that are seeking to overthrow freedom and liberty and, and truth and righteousness and so forth. And they fight against Zion. The Lord raises him up, like Captain Moroni, in Isaiah's case, the Lord's end-time servant, who deals with the rot within and then deals with the threat from without. So first of all, God's people themselves are going to be cleansed. Upon my house shall it begin, right? And then, because that's where it all starts. That's where this whole scenario starts. If the groundwork for Amalekiah's desires had not been laid by Nephite wickedness, that situation may never have arisen. And so after that, then he rallies an army and overthrows the invading forces, and peace is restored again, and the people, through this experience, have humbled themselves and begin living the laws of God, keeping his commandments so he can again bless them in the land. And there we have it. So the time frame is the Book of Mormon history that consists of types of an end-time war in this land, in this promised land of America, or of the Americas. And moving forward, are we willing to covenant with God to defend the liberty of this land? Are we willing to do the same as Moroni's covenanters did? Because that's the only way there'll be deliverance. It's risky, but not as risky as not doing so. For the next time, is there an end-time antichrist or arch-tyrant who repeats ancient history? We're going to be discussing the latter-day king of Assyria, uh, who has types anciently in the kings of Assyria and Babylon of the old world. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time when we learn the latter-day king of Assyria. Based on Jesus' key that all things Isaiah spoke, having been and shall be, will an end-time king of Assyria conquer the world as his predecessors did?